0: Staying at a stranger's house is inherently scary. So can it be to rent out your own home, especially if you're still living in it. Most guests are people like us, and most hosts are people we can trust. But what happens when they aren't? What happens when things seem well off? Welcome to our Scarebnb podcast series. Every episode is a different tension-building book and every book features a different B and B listing location as its setting. So which book will you book? In this first episode you'll be taken to a remote Adirondack cabin in Barnes Corners, New York, where a husband and wife discover someone or something has been waiting for their arrival. Subscribe to our podcast to be notified when a new Scare B and B episode is added, and please feel free to leave a comment with a recommendation about a listing That you'd like us to write about thanks for joining the garage girls who produce this series we know you'll be dying to check out our property rentals here's hoping you survive your stay get away from the cabin chapter one in the dead of winter is when i first started thinking about the plan to get away and when I mentioned it to some friends, a couple we've known since college, they jumped at the chance. While we had trouble finding a place that we all liked, we finally agreed upon a little Adirondack rental in an area known as Barnes Corners, about an hour and a half north of us. It looked nice enough from the photos, with its most impressive feature being a big fireplace made of river rocks. Perched on a small hill, it had a view of what would now be a very frozen pond surrounded by pine trees. It seemed like the perfect getaway for us. Well, almost. Located deep in remote backcountry, this two bedroom rustic cabin was very close to hundreds of square miles of cross country ski trails, which would be our weekend recreation of choice. We look forward to it, actually counting down the days, and were so excited when we got on Route eighty one heading north to the small town of Lorraine. After almost an hour of driving, we turned off to our exit. It was darker on this road than on the highway, and it began to lightly snow. As our headlights lit up the flakes pelting our windshield, our wipers twitching like a spastic metronome, we became transfixed by the slightly disorienting feeling that we were flying through space. Crack your window, I said afraid my husband was getting pulled into the same dark pool of drowsiness into which I could now feel myself slipping. It had been a hard week for both of us, for very different reasons, and coupled with a frenzy of last-minute packing and the heat now being pumped into our Subaru Forester, we were dangerously close to falling asleep. Instantly, I felt the gust of ice-cold air and noticed a heavy chill snake up my spine. At the same time, I heard a ping on my phone. It was a text from our friend Stacy. I read it out loud. Had a family emergency. We'll call you later. Sorry, can't make it. What? My husband groaned. Oh my God, they're not coming. Family emergency, he repeated incredulously. I immediately called Stacy's phone. It rang about five times and finally went to voicemail. I hung up. I didn't feel like leaving a message, especially since I didn't know what had happened yet and my emotions were vacillating between worry and disappointment. I sat looking forward, reeling, yet still mesmerized by the continually curving view of the dark country road and its woods, which was only interrupted every now and then by the occasional trailer or double-wide. They looked like lonely outposts. And then another thought bubbled up, too. What family emergency? why didn't she just say what happened? "'We had planned this outing for weeks.' "'We can forget the steaks,' said Matt, gripping the steering wheel. "'Somebody better have died.' Stacy and Sean had dinner duty for the first night, "'and they promised T-bones. "'She'd already texted that they'd picked them up on their way, "'having headed out for the cabin a full two hours before we did. "'I was dreaming of those steaks, an ice-cold beer, "'and a fire waiting when we arrived.' now, the thought of having to schlep our backpacks on skis a mile in, only to have to make dinner, was less than enticing. And I was annoyed that Stacy didn't pick up my call. I called her once more, and eventually got voicemail again. She should have called. It was a half hour later when the decidedly female voice of our GPS abruptly declared, your destination is on your left. Ironically, there was nothing there but an odd little dilapidated schoolhouse set way back from the road. It was old, like century old, with a partially caved in roof that was at the moment, filling with a snowfall that Matt and I noticed was getting heavier by the minute. These snowbanks are like nine feet tall, Matt grumbled, turning off the car engine. It left us in a silence that was as stark as the landscape of dark drifts, fringed only by moonlight. The snow here, enhanced by lake effect, was legendary. Matt didn't say anything, but I think we were both wondering if we'd made a mistake and should turn back. Suddenly, sitting at home binge-watching Netflix didn't seem like such a bad way to spend another Friday night. Motivated by the cold air that stung our nostrils as we unfastened the skis on the roof of the car, we quickly got into our gear, loaded our bags, and headed toward the trailhead, which was basically just a narrowing of the road a curving stretch of powder snow that the cabin owner advised could only be traversed by skis or snowshoes, and by the looks of several deeper tracks, snowmobiles. Looking back on things now, I can tell you that I felt then that something wasn't right, but I couldn't say what it was or why I thought that. It was just a feeling. We were here now, and we weren't turning back, but in a matter of only a few minutes, we would both wish we'd never set out down that trail into the dark night alone. Chapter Two We may have been more attuned to our intuition, that is, any sign that something bad was about to happen, like some people get before, say, a bad car accident, had we not been so preoccupied with stupid arguing. Mac complained that he was carrying all of the heavy stuff, but I countered that I had our food, plus two bottles of Merlot that clinked around in there against our wine opener, and probably a poorly protected bottle of spaghetti sauce. That's all I needed was to have them shatter, especially since Matt advised me back at home on how to properly pack them. And well, I didn't heed his advice. "'Don't break those,' he said, almost as if he secretly wanted me to break them, only so that he could tell me I packed them wrong. "'Thanks for the tip. I said shortly, feeling myself growing more irritated the longer we huffed and puffed down the trail. Unfortunately, all of my annoyance with how badly my plan was unfolding started to uncontrollably careen towards Matt as its main cause. I was sweating from the exertion of pushing those skis, yet I could already feel the tips of my fingers beginning to numb. It was darker than we expected it to be at this time, and the longer Matt skied ahead, without looking back even once to see if I was still there, much less okay, only seemed to reinforce my idea that my husband was a self-centered jerk. I also really needed to eat. I pushed forward musing at the irony. If Matt and I were honest with each other, we only agreed to go away because there would be the buffer of another couple around. We welcomed the distraction, even if only temporarily, from our increasingly lackluster feelings about our marriage. And here we were, on our way to a remote cabin, with no one else to talk to, nowhere to run, no Wi-Fi or TV. Genius plan. The fact that Matt had lost his job seven months earlier and still hadn't landed anything didn't help our situation. He was depressed and I was worried. Worse, I was growing tired of carrying the full weight of car payments and rent, now that his unemployment had run out. Probably reading my mind, Matt suddenly turned around to look for me on the trail. I squinted in the glare of his headband's spelunking light, the same one I was wearing, and then I just saw him shaking his head. I knew what he was thinking. He didn't want to be here any more than I did. What was that for? I shouted, pushing for a fight, but he ignored me. If anyone knows how to press my buttons, it's Matt and I was already feeling a spike in blood pressure. I angrily pushed hard to catch up, but then he stopped ahead and it gave me time to slide in behind him. As I wedged my skis closer, heart thumping, I could see what he was looking at. I had hoped it was our cabin. I sighed when I saw the steep downward slope instead. Matt was a good skier, but he was carrying a rucksack the size of a six-year-old on his back. And then I heard that accusatory tone. "'Whose idea was this again?' he replied, a little too snarky for my taste. We both knew it was mine. "'Forgive me for thinking we could ever have fun,' I said. "'Good thing you didn't have to pay for it.' The last part was a little too snarky of me. I didn't regret charging this entire weekend to my credit card, just like I did almost everything else these days. But if he thought I was going to put up with his complaining on top of it... Well, he had another thing coming. "'Screw you!' I shouted into the darkness. "'Screw you!' he shot back. "'In your dreams!' "'Don't worry, not interested.' And that was the real kicker. I was fuming mad now. "'Deal!' I said, aiming my skis down the slope and pushing off hard with both poles. I instantly regretted giving it everything I had. I could feel myself reaching a velocity that was probably beyond my abilities.' These weren't downhill skis, after all. As I made my wild, less than graceful descent, the wind seared my face, tearing up my eyes. And to make matters worse, the mascara seeping in burned like a mother. At one point, I couldn't see anything, blinking away the pain and feeling real panic rise up. I could hear Matt yell, watch out! And then I felt something, stab my shins like a hot knife, My whole body lurched forward, tumbling first upward and then downward. Thankfully, my boots unlatched from my skis, but I still fell awkwardly down the hill, rolling like a giant snowball. On the way, I heard the crack of what was likely our two bottles of wine shattering inside my backpack before I ever felt it. A hit of adrenaline surged through my body as I came to a hard stop in a prickly, leafless shrub. I watched as my two skis continued on without me, Sliding down the road, powered by inertia. Matt was by my side in just moments. Are you okay? He asked nervously, and then, Oh my God, you're bleeding. In the moonlight, I could see what he was looking at dark stains in the snow. It looked like a massacre had taken place right there all around me. No, that's just the wine, I choked, trying to catch my breath. I broke our wine. Oddly, Matt just ignored me. Can you stand up, he asked urgently. I think we better get to the cabin. I can see it from here. Yeah, I answered, feeling like an idiot on multiple counts, but also unnerved by the tone of his voice. It was a tenor of fear that I thought I detected, but I couldn't be sure because Matt isn't one to show it like ever. When I tried to get up, I felt soreness on both shins and instinctively began to rub the pain away. "'There's a wire up there,' said Matt in a low, shallow whisper. The fact that he was whispering was more unnerving to me than his actual words. I hadn't processed their meaning yet. But who did he not want to hear us talking? Someone pulled a wire across the road. "'What?' "'That didn't make sense.' I looked back up the hill that I had just tumbled down from, and with some effort I could make it out. A nearly imperceptible wire, like a razor-thin clothesline. I could only make out the parts that glistened in the moonlight. We have to untie that, I said, suddenly realizing it was the reason my shins hurt so badly. Thankfully, my snow pants had provided some protection, but as I stood up I could see that they were shredded, clear through to my heavy wool socks. If a snowmobile runs into that, they'll be ripped right off. Matt grabbed my arm, shaking his head, and pointing toward the rental cabin. I had the impression he wanted me to be quiet, and that was scaring me more than anything. Why would someone run a wire across the trail? It seemed like something that would have to be intentional, and yet my mind rejected the possibilities as I struggled to walk the 20 feet to gather my skis and snap my boots back into them. It must have been some sort of mistake. Matt waited for me in front of the trail to the cabin. I admit that I was bothered by how he kept glancing back up the hill from where we'd started. "'We have to take that down,' I said angrily. "'We can't leave it.' Matt grabbed the scarf around my neck and quickly unfurled it. Then he skied away, edged his way up that hill, and quickly looped my scarf onto the wire. He returned to me with an urging gesture to ski toward the little wooden house about 200 yards away, nestled in a thick cover of trees. My heart was pumping fast now. Still rattled by my fall, pissed about breaking the wine, and now wondering if some deliverance-style inbred freaks were lurking in the woods, I could only think of one thing. Unlocking the front door of that cabin and bolting it again behind us. Chapter 3 While Matt would probably tell you that I could be critical, always noticing things that aren't done around the house, as opposed to the things that are, I like to think I just notice stuff. And in this case, it was two things. First, I noticed the odd flurry of red X's, spray-painted onto a bunch of tree trunks in the woods to the right of the driveway. They just struck me as Creepy. And the other thing was the snowmobile track that was barely perceptible under the fresh snowfall. Even in the dark, as we skied our way toward the cabin, I could see the tracks came in and left again, making a complete loop. But how long ago, I couldn't be sure. Maybe hours? Maybe days? I preferred to think that a snowmobiler had just used the cabin driveway to turn around, or maybe they had thought the driveway was part of the trail, and when they saw the cabin, they turned back and left. For all we knew, it could have been made by the owner who came down to his cabin to check on things. As for the red marks on the trees, they were most likely marked for logging. I decided to file away my observations for now. As we finally approached the cabin entrance, all I wanted was to get inside and warm up. The owner of our rental cabin had told us that he kept the key hidden just above the front door. It was tucked behind the molding on a metal ring. I stepped out of my skis, approached the door, and felt around its jam, praying it would be there. It's not here, I shouted, trying to push down my rising panic. What do you mean it's not there, Matt asked, crunching in the snow behind me. I mean, it's not here. It's got to be. Matt, who was about a foot taller than me, bit off his right glove and reached easily above the door. He fished around for the key while I held my breath. At one point, He even pulled back the trim to see if the key had somehow fallen beneath it. If there was a key, Matt couldn't find it either. Maybe he meant the back door, he suggested, and in a flash we were making our way toward the rear of the cabin, staying as close as possible to the eaves because otherwise we sank up to our knees in deep snow. We passed under a tall ladder leaning against the cabin, and I wondered why it would be left there like that but then suddenly remembered how the owner had warned us against the dangers of heavy snowfall accumulating on the roof. He had written this in the house rules section of his listing, that is, for guests to use the outdoor ladder and shovel to actually climb onto the roof and break up the snow if necessary. At the time, I hadn't thought much about it. One thing that Matt and I could agree on wholeheartedly was that we would not be staying longer than the night, and thankfully, the chore of cleaning the roof would not be ours. Many people don't realize how much snow falls in this area, and we'd noticed that some of the cabins we had looked into renting had another door installed on the second floor, which we only later realized was to allow for entry if the snow was so high that it actually completely buried the front door. i mused at the irony of how Matt and I ended up renting something buried under this much snow. When it was the snow we really wanted to escape, If we'd had more disposable income, we certainly would have booked a place farther south like Florida or the Bahamas. When we reached the rear of the cabin, there was a small deck with a sliding glass door that faced the view of what daylight would reveal to be the frozen pond and pine trees. Matt easily scaled the railing and inspected the doors. I stood down below, suddenly fighting the urge to look behind me. My ears perked to monitor for sound, for crunching snow, but all I could hear was the wind, which was picking up. Now that I didn't have my scarf, my face and nose were growing colder by the minute. I thought about those snowmobile tracks again, ruling out the idea that the owner had made them. If he came here to check on things in the past few days, he surely would have cleaned off the roof. And another detail that bothered me. Where was the shovel, he told us, was also under the eaves by the ladder? Matt was methodical, moving inch by inch along the top of the glass doors, but I was sure the owner had said the key was above the front door. I trekked back to it, took a deep breath, and had the brilliant idea to try the doorknob. It turned and opened effortlessly. Why we hadn't tried the front door earlier seemed weird to me now. I pushed the door inward, ecstatic at our good fortune, and pleased with myself that I was the one to think of it. From the front door I could see Matt at the back sliding glass door. Still searching, so I ran to him and unlatched it. It was open, I yelled happily, hoping the iciness between us would melt by this turn of our luck. At least we could be relieved that we wouldn't have to ski back to our car tonight. Matt tried to slide the door, but it wouldn't budge, even though I'd unlocked it. When I looked down, I could see why a baseball bat was wedged into its sliding track. The owner had likely placed it there to protect against a break in. I pulled out the bat, heavy with weight and drew the door open, this time successfully. Matt stepped in, eager to get out of the cold, even though the inside of the cabin was only a few degrees warmer. It was unlocked, I said again. It was unlocked? Matt said with a weird grimace as if he didn't believe me. It was odd that the owner would have left the door open, but even odder was that the key was sitting on the table. Excited to open the back door, I'd walked right past it, but Matt and I both noticed it there now. "'Had the owner left it there for us? "'Why would he travel all the way out here to open the door "'only to leave it on the table?' "'Did you take the key?' Matt asked, spinning around on me. "'If that was another one of your jokes.' "'No!' I replied, stunned by the accusation. "'I definitely did not take it.' "'Matt and I would have the rest of the night "'to speculate about who put the key on the table "'and tied that wire across the trail. "'Neither one of us seemed very interested.' to argue any more about it so we kept busy first we searched the rest of the rooms there were only three the bathroom and two separate bedrooms we looked in the closet behind the shower curtain and under both beds eventually satisfying ourselves that no one could have let themselves in earlier only to ambush us from a hiding spot as Matt busied himself with starting a fire we both agreed we'd get up at dawn and ski back to the hill and figure out how to cut that wire The thought of someone on a snowmobile getting snagged by it was making us anxious. We knew we should go to remove it, but it was late and cold and snowing, and what trumped it all was that queer, unsettling feeling that neither of us wanted to give form to by speaking of it aloud. But I knew we both sensed. I lit the kerosene lamp hanging above the kitchen table and in our bedroom. Between the three sources, the cabin seemed to be well lit enough that we turned off our headband flashlights. The fact that we rented a cabin that did not have electricity, well, unless you counted the generator, seemed nonsensical to us now. But at the time, we thought it would be quaint, lending to a more pioneering off-grid experience we hoped could snap us out of our rut. As the heat from Matt's fire emanated into all corners of the cold cabin, we felt ourselves relax I began to heat up some water on the old-fashioned gas stove and remembered the mess that was waiting inside my backpack. It also held a box of spaghetti, so despite my desire to throw the thing outside in the snow, I picked it up and dropped it on the table. Before I even unzipped it, though, I noticed something was off. I opened it and warily assessed its contents. Our two bottles of wine, box of spaghetti, Jar of tomato sauce and granola bars and the extra pairs of thermal underwear, which I'd used to cushion it, were all fine. No glass shards. The bottles were completely intact. Good news, I declared excitedly to Matt, holding up both bottles of Merlot like a peace offering. Our night is about to get a whole lot better. Shh, Matt shushed so aggressively that it startled me. Did you hear that? At first I didn't. I could only hear the sound of the rumbling boil of the water in the pot on the stove. "'Listen,' he whispered. And then there was something, like a low growl but from a machine, not an animal. It came from down the long driveway and was growing louder, as if the distance between us was getting smaller. Matt walked to the window behind the kitchen sink and drew back the curtain. With the light inside the cabin, it was almost impossible to see outside. Someone's out there, he said. They're coming. Realizing I hadn't moved, had barely breathed. Since Matt first shushed me, I quickly met him at the window to see what he was looking at. There was a moving bright light that illuminated the entire driveway, casting long shadows from the trees that flanked it. It was a snowmobile. On the counter, I gently placed the bottles of wine that I still had been clutching tightly in both hands. I was wrong about our night getting better. In fact, it was about to get much, much worse. Chapter 4 Matt and I watched from the window as the snowmobile hungrily ate up the rest of the driveway and parked directly in front of our door. There was a man in heavy gear jumping off of it. He noticed us in the window and approached, waving wildly. His wave was distressed though. That is less like a friendly wave and more like he needed something. We watched him flip up the visor on his helmet through the window of the door. I remember noticing his skin and how terrifically smooth it appeared to be, seemingly devoid of any facial hair or even wrinkles. But that was hardly as weird as what I noticed next. When he looked away just briefly from Matt and stared straight at me, I could see a flash of something in his eyes. It was his pupils. They were abnormally large, and then suddenly, as if he noticed that I noticed them, they shrunk back down to normal size. Matt seemed not to notice anything, or at least his face belied any recognition of what I'd just witnessed, and I rationalized that what I'd seen was simply a play of light through the glass, a reflection perhaps, nothing more. We need help, he yelled to us waving both arms as if he was trying to stop traffic he was definitely agitated matt walked a few steps closer to the front door poised to open it what are you doing i whispered harshly we don't know him but then the thought came to us that stupid wire the man knocked on the front door urgently demanding our attention my buddy's hurt he yelled Matt unlocked the deadbolt and swung open the door, letting a rush of cold air in. We all stood there, squaring off to each other. The guy looked about late 20s, maybe early 30s, with very short cut hair from what I could tell with his helmet on. He was well built, standing several inches taller than Matt, who is 6'3", and he was wearing a white snowsuit that looked more like military gear than something you'd buy at a sporting goods store. His snowmobile looked similarly expensive. What happened? Matt asked, instinctively standing a little bit in front of me, like a shield. The guy raised his gloved hand to his face. My friend just flipped his sled. The stranger's voice was excited, and yet I detected a note of something else. Inebriation? I was right behind him, and then he just flew. I think he hit a tree. Is he okay? Matt asked. No, he's not okay. The man shot back, more irritated now. I just left him. I was afraid to move him. "'Did you call 911?' I asked, trying to be helpful, wondering what we could do. "'My phone's not getting a signal here.' "'Here,' Matt said, grabbing his phone out of his back pocket. "'Use mine.' Matt stepped back in the cabin, grabbed his jacket off a hook in the wall, and walked with a guy farther outside. As he did, he looked warily back at me, indicating that I should close the door behind him. I didn't like Matt being separated from me, but I was grateful that the cabin was getting warmer. In just those few minutes with the door open, the main room had become bone-chilling cold again. From the kitchen window, I watched Matt standing next to the guy as he made the call. But by the way, he was lifting the phone up toward the dark sky and changing positions. I gathered he couldn't get a signal either. Matt popped only his head back into the cabin. Can you try your phone? Where are you going? We're going to try to get a signal down the driveway. I knew we should have taken that wire down, I said regretfully. Matt nodded, grabbed his flashlight and gloves off the table and walked out. I rushed up to close the door again. I pressed 911 and waited. No answer. No signal. No surprise. Both of our phones were on the same service. I stood and watched Matt walk with the man about 40 yards down the driveway. I didn't like being even that far away from him which was ironic since I had been dreading being stuck alone with him at home. It's just that he was always there, always around, always saying something to annoy me. Or worse, playing useless video games. How I wished I was home watching Matt play one of those video games now. I put on my jacket and hat and walked outside. Suddenly I felt that I'd rather be out there in the cold than inside that cabin by myself. I held the phone in my hand and tried 911 again. And then I remembered something, how text messages could sometimes be delivered when your phone appeared not to have service. I couldn't text 911, but maybe I could text Stacy or my parents. I sent Stacy a message first. What happened? Can you text now? And that's when I heard something, a tiny, almost imperceptible ping, a text ping. I sent her another message, we're at the cabin. Someone is hurt on the trail, can't get signal for 911. And I heard that ping again. I moved closer to the man's snowmobile because it sounded like it was coming from that general vicinity. I texted more. We really need help. Snowmobile are hurt. Call 911. Ping, ping, ping. That's when I noticed a small flap at the back of the snowmobile covering a little compartment built into the seat. I lifted it up and reached my hand inside, feeling around. When my fingers felt the hard shape of a phone and I drew it back out, you'd think a coiled-up cobra was staring me in the face. It wasn't just any phone. It wasn't the man's phone. It was Stacy's phone. I looked at the screen to read all of the texts that I'd just sent to her. The last one seemed to be taunting me as I stared at it now. We really need help. I couldn't process it all right away. I scrolled up and became confused. All of those earlier messages with me about her family emergency, they were there too, of course. And then I found it. Another message Stacy sent to Sean. It was in all caps, and it sent my heart thumping so hard I thought it would burst out of my chest. Get away from the cabin. Chapter 5 My eyes darted up toward the driveway where I had just seen Matt and the man. Neither was standing there now. They were both gone. Matt! I yelled into the dark night. Matt! The snow seemed to angrily eat up my words, literally absorbing them into itself and making me feel like I was alone on an island. Despite how hungry and tired I was, my mind sped up with the heavy shot of adrenaline my body was most certainly cranking out. Why did the stranger have Stacy's phone? Why had Stacy texted Sean that message? Where were they both now? Why wasn't Matt answering me? And then what arose in my mind was possibly the worst question of all. If our bottles of red wine hadn't broken, what was that then we saw on the snow? My fingers were trembling violently when I texted Matt. Don't trust man, found Stacy's phone in his sled. Matt! I screamed once more, giving it everything I had. Nothing. Silence. It's funny how your brain works like a computer when you're really scared. Mine sent me an image like it had already done, an extensive calculation was spitting out the result. The problem in this case was what to do next and how to defend myself, if in fact that was even something I needed to do. The best answer I got, and it wasn't that great, was a baseball bat. I remembered the one wedged in the sliding glass door. So I shot into the house and retrieved it. I also had the wherewithal to lock the cabin door on my way out. I shoved the key deep into my pocket and then I ran towards the trail and that wire, which is where I hope Matt was now. If all of this could be explained somehow and I looked ridiculous running toward them, crazily wielding a bat, I didn't care. That would be a good problem to have. The bat was heavy in my hand And it gave me what I needed most right then, a tiny buffer against fear. And that's when I saw Matt running up the driveway toward me. It was the sight of his face covered in blood that made me scream. Go back, he was yelling, waving at me wildly. Run! Instinctively, I stopped dead and didn't start back up in the opposite direction until I saw what Matt was running from. It looked like the man in the white snowmobile suit but he had taken off his helmet, so he looked differently now. He also had something in his hands. Everything seemed to be happening so quickly. I couldn't make it out. I turned and ran in the opposite direction, both relieved to see Matt and yet even more terrified. I wasn't even sure how Matt and I made it back to the cabin door, considering how difficult it was to traverse that snow. All I can say is adrenaline is a powerful drug, but it wasn't helping me find my key any faster. In fact, it was making my hands stupid. In my mind, I cursed myself for locking that cabin door. I threw down my bat, which seemed so ridiculous for me to be carrying now, and searched my pockets, fumbling desperately for that key. I could hear the crunching snow made by the man in that weird white suit. He was still pursuing us, closing the gap. And yet I could waste no time to turn around to assess how close he was behind us now. And then, success! My fingers curled around the ring. I pulled out the key, shoved it into the heavy lock above the doorknob, and turned. Matt and I blasted open the door so hard that it swung wide and slammed against the inside wall. I fell to the floor. Matt wasted no time to turn and close the door behind us, though. Through the small window in the front door, we could see the man had made it to the end of the driveway. While Matt and I were breathing heavily with exertion at this point, The man seemed not the least bit winded. And even more strange, he wasn't running. He was walking. Slowly, methodically, purposefully toward the cabin as if he had all the time in the world. How he could make it here this fast and not be breathing hard was more than unsettling. His expression seemed to mesmerize Matt as they locked eyes through the window of the door. So I quickly snapped the deadbolt. Hearing it click gave us little sense of security, though, especially when we could see the dark shape outside approaching. It was his walk that haunted me most, the stiff way his limbs move now, as if he wasn't actually human, but something else that could mimic, but not precisely replicate, the subtle nuances of arms moving in tandem with legs. The cabin door was an ordinary wood door, A Home Depot discount door. Nothing special. Even with the deadbolt, it wasn't a vault. And with a window in it, no less. Well, it presented us with more than a few challenges. Then the man stopped, but only to bend down to pick up something in the snow. The baseball bat. The one I dropped when I was fumbling to find the key. Matt and I braced ourselves at the door, completely unsure if we should stand there or run. But it wasn't the bat that really terrified me. It was what I thought I saw in the man's other hand, his right hand, that sent such a jolt of fear through my entire body that I completely froze, paralyzed, and in that moment literally unable to breathe or even step back away from that door. If there was ever a time where I felt despair, where I could sense the end of life so imminently, it was this moment. This is when I knew we were both going to die. Chapter 6 You may think that if something like this ever happened to you, that you would do things differently, that you would be smarter, braver, stronger, but you really don't know. Truth is, when I saw what the man on the other side of that door was holding, I flashed upon images of my own grisly end, and I'm ashamed now to admit that they hypnotized me, gripping me in a way that prevented me from doing anything more to stop it from happening, including move, or coming up with something clever as a plan. Matt, however, was different in this moment. I remember how calm his voice was, like nothing I'd ever heard, especially considering the raging arguments we'd had at home lately. His tone was as clear and soft as water, and yet unyielding, and I couldn't help but to follow his simple instructions, which he recounted to me as if he was talking to a child. I suddenly flashed on an image of him talking to our own children someday, so calm and sure and it somehow bolstered me with the strength to focus. I want you to go out the back, he said. I'll stop him. You get away from here. Get to the car. Get help. Matt picked up a cast iron griddle from the top of the old-fashioned stove. He gripped it by its handles and girded himself with it like a shield and in that instant I knew I wasn't going anywhere without Matt. Under no circumstances would I leave him. I couldn't. Whatever he was about to confront, if and when it broke through that door and came into the cabin to rip us to bloody shreds, it would have to confront us both because I wasn't leaving his side. I grabbed a frying pan from the hanging rack above our heads. It was heavy with weight as I pulled it down, feeling my body instinctively lower its center of gravity as if readying for battle. And that's when something so shocking and unexpected happened. A sound so loud and ear splitting that we thought an earthquake was taking place. In fact, the walls of the cabin shook so hard that the rest of the pans hanging on the rack clattered as violently as the glass of every single window in the place. One minute we were looking at the man approaching the cabin and the next we saw a sheet of white It took a few seconds to understand what was happening. Huge chunks of snow, many tons of frozen water, which had once been sitting on the steep peak of the cabin's roof, were now sliding down both sides. And it kept sliding until we couldn't see the man anymore. Couldn't even see out the window. A huge wall of snow had now blocked our front door. From the white outside the sliding glass doors, it had blocked the back one too. And just like that, we were saved or at least we thought we were. It took us a few minutes to assess what had happened. Matt and I surmised that the fire he had built earlier had slowly heated up the cabin, and in so doing, heated the metal roof, which melted the heavy winter snow, an entire season of snowfall on top of it, just enough that it was no longer stable. Throwing open the front door and slamming it closed again was likely all it needed to come down in a fury, We were grateful that it hadn't fallen on either of us. We wonder what happened to the man outside. Did it tumble on top of him? Was he dead? Or was he still out there? Waiting. Our hearts pounding in our chests. We strained to hear some sound stirring outside, any indication of what may have happened to him. But we heard nothing more not the sound of the snowmobile starting up either nor driving away which suggested he was incapacitated if not dead under all that snow but what if he wasn't what if he'd missed the snow falling and been able to avoid it entirely what then we looked at the sliding glass doors in the back held our breath and listened Chapter 7. We heard nothing for a long time, even though it seemed unlikely. We wanted to believe the man, or whatever he was, could not survive, that he would have been crushed by the weight of all that snow. And it was this thought that helped us to calm our nerves and regain our senses, even if our new problem was that we were locked inside the cabin. Both of our doors blocked by snow with no way to get out. It gave me time to look over Matt's face ...and assess his wound and find out what had happened down by the trail. It was actually his nose that was bleeding, but thankfully it didn't seem to be broken. I scooped up some snow that we had both tracked in from our boots... ...placed it on a washcloth and held it on Matt's face to ease the pain and lessen the swelling. He told me that he had followed the man down to the trail to help his friend. But there was no snowmobile out there, no wreckage of one. And of course there was no friend... It was then that Matt got my text on his phone. He felt the hair go up on the back of his neck like a split-second warning just before the man head-butted him in the face. Thankfully, Matt reacted quickly enough that he didn't take the full force of the man's power, which likely would have knocked him out cold, or worse, left him for dead in the snow. And when he saw me running towards them, Matt thought his best defense was to run and get us both to the safety of the cabin. I shook my head for a long moment, fighting the urge to cry. Any relief that I felt about our situation, which now seemed admittedly much better, was quelled by the sinking feeling I had in the pit of my stomach. Whatever happened to Stacy and Sean wasn't good. We both knew it. And we intuitively sensed that it was better not to speculate until we're out of this nightmare and literally out of the woods. We agreed that we would stay up through the night, that it would be safer to leave in the morning and in the light of day, we would dig ourselves out the back door, get away from that horrible cabin and back to our car. While we waited, we both tried to send texts to our parents. We could tell that they weren't delivered. Sketchy backwoods reception. We'd hope that if for some reason we didn't make it out of there, our texts would somehow be recovered and our parents would at least know what happened and if the text did end up being delivered, they'd send help. In any event, it gave us something to do. I sent a text to Matt, even though I knew it wouldn't be delivered until later. Eventually, we did make it out of the cabin at first light on Saturday morning, but not without first digging our way with two five-gallon pails we found in the bathroom. They were sitting next to a large axe, which we also took with us. We discovered the man's snowmobile sitting in the driveway, still with the key in its ignition, and although neither of us could manage to start it by its main power switch, Matt noticed a small, oddly shaped, nearly imperceptible second one, and this has become a little detail that only troubled us later on. When Matt pressed it, we didn't realize it did anything at all, had Matt not squeezed its throttle. The high-tech sled lurched forward, catching us both by surprise and dragging Matt for a good distance before he finally released the accelerator. He jumped back on, motioning for me, and I ran up, wasting no time to hop on him back, grabbing Matt tightly around his waist. We didn't look back for the man, or our skis, which were now buried. We didn't look back once. The snowmobile was lightning fast and eerily quiet, could not hear it moving on snow. There was no telltale engine growl like the loud one we'd heard the night before and oddly we couldn't even perceive the sound of the track propelling the sled. Quite impossibly there was no sound at all. We drove back to the trail and up that murderous hill stopping only when we reached the metal wire still strung across it. Matt stopped the sled jumped off and used the axe to rip the wire clean off the tree that was holding it with a bolted metal fastener. Matt handed me back the axe, but before he mounted the sled again, he stopped suddenly. He walked back to the wire and pulled off my scarf. When he got back on, he turned and handed it to me. And I can tell you in that moment, I was never happier to be married to this man. At some point. Our parents did get our text messages and called the authorities. Strangely, the investigators never did find the body of the man we hoped had succumbed to the avalanche of snow, nor did they ever find his snowmobile, which we described in our report as being strangely high-tech. Thankfully, Matt had thought to take a photo of it with his phone by the trailhead, which is where we abandoned the snowmobile when we reached our car. Currently, there are many aspects of this case that are both unresolved and disconcerting, including the fact that two different groups of riders from the same local snowmobiling club reported seeing a battalion of Green Berets and three Black Hawk helicopters on back trails in the general vicinity of the cabin a day after the police were dispatched to investigate. No official explanations have ever been offered. No one seemed to care much either about the photos of the snowmobile including the fact that it had no registration number. Most upsetting is what the investigators did find back at the cabin. The remains of Sean and Stacy recovered later that day. Out of respect for their families, we won't write the details of what happened to them here. We can tell you, however, is that they were buried under the snow that came down from the roof. Apparently their bodies were dragged up there. It was perhaps the weight of them that helped to send the snow down when it did, and so in some weird way, Matt and I both feel that our friends helped to save us, and we are forever grateful to have a second chance at everything. We eventually made it back to our car and finally the highway, which is when Matt's phone finally pinged with the text message I'd sent to him the night before. He managed to smile when he read it. I smiled because I was looking at my phone, too. Matt had texted me the exact same thing. Neither one of us said anything for a long time. But I did reach out for his hand, and he held mine for the rest of our ride home. Okay, recording. Wait, let's turn it off and hear, hear without it. It is muted right now. It just started up again. Now you turned it off. No, I haven't touched anything. I just went like this. I haven't touched anything. Well, I heard it. Now I don't hear it. I didn't touch it. So um, so I sound very... Should I use my radio voice? Sophia Dibilicek. Should I use my radio voice? Sophia Dibilicek. De de Bella Denim. Don't be dramatic. Bella denim. Or I'll just... I can have a high voice. Or I can have... My Beth Salmon radio voice. Oh, you can talk with an English accent. See, so, do you believe that goes me now? In an act. <laughs> See, I told you it was on. I know. So, I think that, that must be the internet. That must be the internet because it wasn't even on me. Okay, let's. T- okay, let's. Uh, bugger, uh, bugger off. Let's. uh. <laughs> I was going to say, let's test it now. Hey, welcome to our second Scare b&b after show with the Garage Girls. Two girls in, in the a garage, garage creating, creating stuff. stuff. I'm Beth Salman. I'm Courtney Dunham, and we're here in our <laughs> Culver City <laughs> lock office. I just there's like a glare there, and I saw I'm Beth Salman, and I thought, I was waiting for you to go. <laughs> and I'm Beth Salmon. I'll be recording today. I'm Beth Salmon. I could do it. Oh, we recorded all that. Yeah. What's our recording? These are the bloopers. We should totally keep those because that one is fun.